Welcome. Thank you all for being here. My name is Gene Healy. Uh, I'm a vice president here at the Cato Institute, and I'll be your moderator today. Everybody knows that the United States is a uniquely free country, thanks in large part to our uniquely wise constitution, bequeathed to us by the framers whom Jefferson called an assembly of demigods. Recently, former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay went even further than Jefferson. Uh, he told an evangelical talk show host that, quote, God created this nation. He created or he wrote the Constitution. That's an extreme example, but American exceptionalism and constitutional near idolatry is more or less an article of faith in American politics, especially for conservatives. Uh, Barack Obama found that out the hard way in 2009 at a NATO summit in France, uh, when in response to a reporter's question, he answered, uh, I believe in American exceptionalism. Uh, America, I think, has a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution that, though imperfect, are exceptional. In the course of saying that, he made the grave mistake of allowing that other nations, like the British, probably have their versions of exceptionalism, too. And you know, since, among other things, the English gave us Magna Carta and the common law, you wouldn't think that this was the most outrageous thing Barack Obama had ever said. But because of that tepid sort of diplomatic answer about American exceptionalism, he ran into a buzzsaw of conservative criticism, National Review, Mitt Romney, Newt Gingrich, virtually everyone else on the right. Uh, and as a result, yesterday in his foreign policy speech at West Point, Obama declared, I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. <laughs> so he's learned his lesson. It's uh, American exceptionalism is a jealous God. Thou shalt have no other exceptionalisms alongside it. Uh, in the book we're here to discuss today, the, the Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America, Professor Buckley cites a Gallup poll from a few years back wherein 80% of Americans agreed with the sentiment that, quote, the United States has a unique character because of its history and constitution that sets it apart from other nations as the greatest in the world. But at the same time, there are these other polls, other contemporaneous polls that show that fewer than one in five Americans trust the federal government and that nearly three quarters of us consider it the biggest threat to our country in the future. So it seems we're disgusted with and terrified by our government as it actually operates and yet we're convinced that we've got the best system ever devised by the mind of man. So go figure. Well, in The Once and Future King, uh, Professor Buckley takes a somewhat different view. Uh, Frank Buckley is a foundation professor at the George Mason University School of Law. He's taught there since 1989. Uh, before that, he was a visiting Olin Fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, he's also taught at McGill. And he's the author of books including The American Illness, Fair Governance, uh, Just Exchange, and The Morality of Laughter. He's also a senior editor at The American Spectator. And last fall, he even took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal to rail against the scourge of bike lanes. 
We have not yet begun to fight the bike lanes, was the title of the piece. So I think it's safe to say that Professor Buckley's credentials as a conservative are impeccable. But in the once and future king, he departs radically from what I've been describing as this conservative and to a large degree American conventional wisdom. Uh, he writes, an American is apt to think that his constitution uniquely protects liberty. The truth is almost exactly the reverse. Turns out we're not so amazingly exceptional. We're not uniquely free. In fact, parliamentary systems, he, he argues, by and large have a, a much better track record of protecting civil and economic liberty. Uh, as he points out, presidents for life are, the, are a familiar thing in history. Prime ministers for life, less so. The cult of the presidency is something to, to product, do a little product placement. The cult of the presidency is a fact of American life, whereas whoever really heard of a cult of the prime minister? I actually Googled it and only got a, a handful of hits. Uh, presidential systems, he, he argues convincingly, are more corrupt, more likely to suffer catastrophic breakdowns, and more likely to degenerate into autocracies than our <laughs> parliamentary ones. So maybe, Professor Buckley suggests, what's exceptional about the United States is that for more than 200 years, we've remained free while yet presidential. And let me just briefly cast off the moderator's guise of neutrality to tell you that uh, the once in the future king is the liveliest, most thought-provoking, and best written book about the presidency since a personal favorite of mine, Theodore Lowy's 1985 classic, The Personal President. And so I can't recommend this book highly enough. Uh, Professor Buckley is going to give us a brief overview of the book's themes, after which I'll introduce our distinguished commentator, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, and he will further draw out and explore some of, the, some of those themes in a dialogue with Professor Buckley. So with that, please welcome Frank Buckley. Thank you so much, Gene. It's a delight to be here. It's, it's always great for an author to come and talk about his ideas, but when you see people holding his book, it's very heaven. I'm especially happy to be introduced by Gene here. I, I would have been happy if he had said this was the best book on the subject since another book called The Cult of the Presidency, written by one Gene Healy, which I thought was absolutely superb and got into it in a very subtle and sophisticated way, missed by most people. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and I thank all of you people for showing up as well. Well, um, in 1867, Walter Badgett wrote a book called The English Constitution. And what he said was, everything you know about the British Constitution is wrong. You think that it's a government of separation of powers, of king and parliament, of king, Queen Victoria, House of Lords, House of Commons. But he said all of that is what he called the dignified part of the Constitution, whereas the efficient part the part where real power resided was the House of Commons. We too have been taught that in America, ours is a government of separation of powers, but now a new badger is required to point out that that describes only what might be called the dignified part of the American Constitution, whereas the efficient part where real power resides is in the White House. 
Our ceremonies, on ceremonies, we have no lessons to take from the British. We have our State of the Union address, much more dignified, I think, than the speech from the throne. But of the efficient parts of the Constitution, that comes down, I think, to, to, to a mere dozen words of the Constitution in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1. The President shall hold his office during the term of four years. When you want to describe the structure of the federal government here in Washington, that it seems to me to be what it's about. I had lunch with a columnist the other day who said, he was conservative, he said, oh, the Republicans will take the Senate, I think, and won't that be great? And I thought, well, what difference is it going to make? And he said, well, they'll pass bills and they'll send them up to the White House for signature. And I said, yes, and they'll ignore them, and then what? Well, sputter a little bit, of course, but it won't really matter. It wasn't always that way in the recent past. Then the separation of powers gave Congress a meaningful role in governance. The doctrine taken from framers, from Montesquieu and from Blackstone, was that to preserve liberty, you need to divide up government. And you have to ensure that government will, or the power will not be concentrated in a single person or a single body. But now, separationism doesn't seem to divide power in any way, but rather it seems to immunize presidents from oversight by Congress. I mean, that I think is certainly true when you contrast presidential regimes with parliamentary ones. All of this has been a long time coming. It didn't start with President Obama, but now I think it's safe to say that a new constitution has arrived or is on the verge of arriving, and it's something I call crown government. And it's rather like the government of George III in 1789 or 1787. In fact, I, I think George III would rather admire and, and envy President Obama's power over Washington. And that makes Obama, in my view, the most consequential president since George Washington. Why was Washington so consequential? Because in 1783, he could have been king and declined to do so. And when George III heard that, George III said, he is the greatest man in the world. But now reversing that, Obama has reached for king-like powers. He is the un-Washington. He is our new George III. And I do not think we will go back to a president that can reign in a president. The old constitution gave America limited government for 225 years, but now I think it's time for milk biscuits and Betty buys. Consider the range of presidential powers if you don't believe me. He can make laws by fiat. Paul Begala said, stroke of the pen, law of the land, kind of neat. Um, you will, those of you who are here next week will hear um, Philip Haberger wonder if one can even describe this as law. To me, it's law. If I may take the liberty of reviewing a book that I've not read, it seems to me that as an Austinian, the command of a sovereign backed by by force, the threat of force is law, and that's precisely what we have with rule, the, the regulatory rule overseen by the president. The president can unmake laws through an exercise of uh, what is called the royal prerogative power in Britain. Um, this violates a whole bunch of things in the Constitution, one might think, the vesting clause, the take care clause, the oath, 
most importantly, the presidential veto power and the doctrine of separation of powers, but, but so what? I mean, we can talk later about whether or not the courts can do anything to stop this, and I'll argue that it's not going to happen. What's going to happen instead is that if the president sees a bill he doesn't like, he'll simply decline to enforce it. He'll ignore it. Why veto a bill and risk a, an override when you can simply take the easier step of saying, yes, 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 that's all very nice, and we'll, uh, we'll enforce this in due course. The president has a spending power, which the, is utterly inconsistent with the Constitution. Uh, you'll recall at the time of the TARP bailout, and I never hear the words too big to fail without getting physically ill. At the time of the TARP bailout, this was for financial institutions, quote unquote. Financial institutions does not, I think, include General Motors or Chrysler. But yet, of the $800 billion, $80 billion went to car manufacturers. You may recall the constitutional crisis that occurred at this violation of the appropriation power, but if so, you have a better memory than I do. And then there's the war power. Well, the point is that the president has the power to go to war whenever he wants, and Congress can't or doesn't do much about it. Uh, the best book on the subject of the war power by John Peavehouse concludes that it did nothing to restrain presidents who want to go to war. And it's not even the case at present that one gets as president much cover from a congressional resolution. Because as you know, one can always be for it, before one's against it, which is the case of Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. So you put it all together, the right to make rules uh, willy-nilly almost, it seems, by regulation, the right to refuse to enforce laws, the spending power, the war power, and you've got, as I say, a power, a source of power that a George III would, would envy. Why did all of this happen? Well, it, it happened because of things that the framers, for example, didn't anticipate. Chiefly, the framers did not anticipate democracy. But democracy gave us a form of government in which the president is chosen by the people and indeed is the only elected official elected by the people at large. That gives him a legitimacy that no one else has. It means that in debates with respect to the debt ceiling, it's one person, the president, as against 435 fractious people led in the House by a speaker from someplace in Ohio you never heard of. Then there's the rise of the regulatory state, uh, the role of the media. All of these things have happened in America. Importantly, they've also happened throughout the first world. But the difference is that in parliamentary systems, you have a, 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 ma a method of, of constraining a president, which is, which is absent here. Um, you have non-confidence motions, for example. But even more than non-confidence motions, I think to understand parliamentary government, you have to think of it as a form of a, a, a corporate form of government more than anything, where the prime minister is the chief executive, but behind the prime minister is a not impuissant board composed of party elders. And if it seems that the prime minister is not about to lead the party into victory, then there'll be a, a hook brought out, as happened to Margaret Thatcher in 1990, or in Canada, Jean Chrétien in 2004. Uh, in both cases, they thought he was going to lead the party down. That, that 
method of constraining a president doesn't exist here. You have the form of legislative oversight of daily uh, of, of question period in the House of Commons. You see, I, I think Hillary was right when she said, at this point, what difference does it make? Right? Two years, year and a half after the case. Whereas, you know, in, in a parliamentary system, it is the option of the opposition to go back day after day after day on the same issue. That was how, for example, a liberal government was brought down in Canada in 1956 or 57. You know, at that point, the Tories just came back day after day after day on, on, a, on a rather minor bill, as it, as it happens. But the liberals showed such arrogance that they almost begged the people to take them down, and the voters obliged. Uh, there's, there's nothing like that. And then finally, to revert to a theme of Gene in his book on the cult of the presidency, one thing you notice if you move here from a parliamentary regime is that Jack's, what I call Jack Spratt's law does not obtain here. Jack Spratt's law, as I call it, involves the separation of the fat of the ceremonial head of state as against the lean meat of the power of the head of government. Here they're the same person. And there's a reverence that's attached to the office of the presidency that's entirely lacking in the case of the prime minister. Um, Gordon Wood says, for example, people here ask, what would Washington do? Whereas nobody would ever ask, what would Billy Pitt do? It's absurd, <laughs> right? If there is a national tragedy, it requires a healing speech from the president one which would be celebrated by Peggy Noonan daubing her eyes, <laughs> right? And there's even something a little unpatriotic about, about not liking your president. Although, I, I explained the Bush derangement syndrome of a dozen years ago this way. It seems to me that if you're an American, you were called upon, required almost, under the psychological compulsion of loving your president. And if you find you cannot love him, you must hate him. Much easier to treat him as a buffoon a figure of fun and laugh at him. So I'm going to stop, but I'll mention one other thing, which is I wrote the book as a Canadian, but I became an American citizen last month. Right. <laughs> the date was April 15. It was as if to say, welcome to America, here's the bill. <laughs> To further explore some of those, is those issues, we're very pleased to have with us Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Judge Ginsburg was appointed to the D.C. Circuit by President Reagan in November 1986. He served as chief judge from 2001 to 2011 and continues to serve as senior circuit judge. He is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, where I believe they still sell a T-shirt that says, U Chicago Law School, hell does freeze over. <laughs> uh, he clerked at the Supreme Court for Justice Thurgood Marshall, has been a professor at Harvard Law School, and joined the George Mason Law faculty in 2013. But for me, one of Judge Ginsburg's most impressive achievements is that he managed some years back to make the book review section of Cato's Regulation magazine momentarily famous. Uh, this is uh, quite a feat. Uh, he, in 1995, he reviewed David Schoenbrod's book, 
power without responsibility for regulation and coined the phrase the Constitution in exile uh, to refer to a host of constitutional provisions such as the subject of that book, the non-delegation doctrine uh, that had been banished uh, after the New Deal constitutional revolution. Uh, the New Republic's Jeffrey Rosen found the phrase irresistible and 10 years later, about 2004, 2005, wrote a blockbuster New York Times Magazine story about the Constitution in Exile movement, something that it's not clear ever really existed, but it sure made it easier for us to recruit book reviewers. Uh, Judge Ginsburg is going to address some questions to Professor Buckley aimed at exploring some of the ideas we've introduced uh, so far, uh, and then we'll open it up to a wider conversation with the audience. Uh, um, and maybe we'll get at the fundamental question, uh, should we restore the Constitution in exile or just uh, put the whole thing in exile and replace it with a parliamentary system? Thank you, Jane. Frank has once again uh, proved uh, his modesty is equal to his erudition. Uh, because uh, his remarks today give you no sense whatever of the uh, of the, the the learning and the uh, uh, quality of the thought behind this book. It is um, it, it's simply uh, hard to imagine how a person. Uh, in the course of a lifetime could become as educated in as many fields as Frank has done. But the sources on which he draws are so disparate, so numerous, so um, in some cases obscure, um, and in some cases humorous, uh, as simply to make this an extraordinarily admirable piece of scholarship. Um, with with many a well-turned phrase uh, thrown of his own thrown in. Now the the book draws a number of subtle distinctions, or at least of distinctions that are not in common parlance here, uh, and uh, that knit together uh, an argument about the superiority of parliamentary government, based on, <coughs> pardon me, based on a detailed history of parliamentary government in both Canada and the United Kingdom, <clears throat> particularly in the, um, eight, in the 19th century, I would say, 19th and 20th centuries, um, a familiarity with the details of events and of the uh, character as well as, as identity of the individuals involved that brings home uh, really a, a series of, of, of quite fascinating stories. Um, one, the first of which is the story of how it came to be at the convention uh, that we ended up with the president that we got, uh, and how, uh, well, that we got initially, and how that changed over time as well through the formation of political parties, through the... Um, the through the change in the way in which states elected, um, uh, uh, chose their electors and, and state legislators pledged themselves to candidates. Uh, and then finally, the 17th Amendment, uh, all of which uh, takes us from the, the republic that the framers envisioned to the 
uh, near democracy uh, that we now have. Um, and a similar treatment um, of the Canadian experience, which takes place in light of the American experience, informed by it, both parties, that is to say, Britain and Canada, well informed by this experience, both of them having lived through our revolution as participants in the events as they unfolded. And Canada is a very keen observer of how the wheels came off in this country uh, between the time of independence and the act of dominion, so, which was 1867. Um, third, a story of, uh, of how uh, power shifted in, in uh, the United Kingdom to the point that the House of Commons is the only show in town. Um, although I don't think you went into enough detail in, for the background of the Parliament Act, but that's a small matter. <laughs> you mentioned it, and I think understandably assumed that we all knew about this background. Um, now, throughout the book, there is a, uh, a, 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 an increasing number of references to events of the last, I would say, two administrations, the current and, and most uh, previous uh, uh, administrations, um, as um, harbingers of, um, well, as, as, as unfortunate examples of the shift towards crown government and as harbin potential harbingers of, of a further shift in the same direction because the forces at work um, don't seem to be abated uh, or abating nor, nor in large part reversible, although in the end... Frank, having concluded that it's largely irreversible, uh, does suggest some potentially mitigating uh, reforms. Um, but I was left with, with uh, I must admit here that, um, that uh, insofar as I've served in government, it was in the executive branch, not in the legislative. Um, and so my only personal experience with being, with, with the, with the challenges uh, that the two branches face in dealing with each other and with, with um, the problems that they encounter apart from each other uh, comes directly from my time at the White House and at the Department of Justice. And that gives me a somewhat different perspective, I think. Uh, I, I, as far as I know, Frank, you are, you are unsullied by government experience. <laughs> uh, and um, make, that makes you a dispassionate observer of all three of the governments in question and a partisan of, uh, of no branch. But here we see an arg a sustained argument in this book for the superiority of parliamentary government um, on, the, on one of the principal grounds. Well, there are several, but one of the principal grounds, of course, is that, um, that the, uh, the government of the day may not be the government of tomorrow. There is no term. The... Um, the government faces an opposition daily when both are, are in or near London, and I presume Ottawa, and I've seen them in action. You can see them, I don't know if it's C-SPAN or some other service that provides access to, you can see question time from Ottawa and, um, and from London if you're sufficiently insomniac, as I am, to uh, stumble across them. Uh, and it's a very different spectacle. It is not, uh, it is not anything remotely like um, anything in our own experience, including the closest proxy, which would be a presidential press conference of a sort that really hasn't happened 
probably at least since the Clinton administration and decreasingly over time in the last mm -hmm. few decades. Um, there he is, the, um, the, uh, the uh, head of government, um, being taxed with questions by uh, a determined opposition, which, as Frank points out, are often questions of utter triviality um, about which the uh, president, uh, the uh, prime minister, is nonetheless expected to have uh, both a ready and a witty response, or at least to muster one by the next session. Um, now, there are problems of cause and effect that run throughout this book, uh, questions of cause and effect that are perhaps unsolvable, but are not addressed. And I'd like to raise a few. Um, one of which uh, is that um, uh, Frank makes a re repeated number of observations from different perspectives to the effect that parliamentary governments uh, much more rarely um, go to war, uh, don't, elect don't elect prime ministers for life, don't fall into uh, tyrannical destitute, um, achieve better levels of, um, of uh, citizen involvement, wealth, and um, uh, uh, literacy, I think are, there, are all in there, if I'm correct, uses uh, certainly a freedom, uses indices of economic and political freedom uh, to show that there is a, uh, a distinct advantage shown for parliamentary over presidential systems. Most of the tyrannies of the world are presidential in name. Of course, they're neither presidential nor parliamentary. They're just tyrannies. But most of them are, are in the form of presidencies. Um, uh, um, that's just undeniable, but I'm not sure whether it's really all that significant. Um, but here are some problems of, of causation that I'd like to, to pose. I don't think it would really be a good idea for the President of the United States to be responding to trivia raised by every member of the House, any member of the House, relating to the problem of some constituent. Uh, but that's exactly what does, can and does happen in parliamentary systems. Um, the the um, uh, United States is simply in a different position than either of the other two countries, or to, for that matter, than any other country in the world. You can call it exceptionalism, but there's nothing inherent about it. It just is the fact that the 11 carrier battle groups of the United States Navy keep the world from going up in flames on an almost daily basis. And that's a responsibility that the President of the United States uniquely bears. And he calls upon the Prime Minister of Canada, the Prime Minister of England, and that of Australia, and that of New Zealand for help when needed, and it's always forthcoming. But they are not burdened with the same role in the world that is the United States and the President of the United States. Now, the, the um, powers that Frank mentioned, uh, the non-prosecution power, veto power, spending, war power and power to, for an issue through executive agencies to issue regulations pursuant to statutory authorization, that's not slighted in the book in the least, um, are indeed significant powers. Um, there are, and I'll comment on a couple of them, as you, you anticipated, Frank, the non-prosecution power, the power of the president not to enforce certain laws, 
is in some tension with the oath faithfully to execute the laws, but it is not a tension that can be resolved, certainly not judicially. It can be resolved by the electorate if they're dissatisfied enough with a failure to, to enforce some laws. Some laws don't lend themselves to enforcement or non-enforcement decisions. They're self-executing or they give rights to people that can be vindicated in court. So the president's non-prosecution power is not uh, one that uh, enables him to, uh, to uh, moot the relevance of, uh, of anything, that, just about anything the Congress does. Um, the, um, and so it's not, a good it's not a great substitute for the veto power. In some cases, it simply wouldn't, mm -hmm. it would not be a substitute. As for spending, um, the power of the president to make expenditures without specific authorization uh, and appropriation is um, a fairly new phenomenon, at least as far as I can tell. You gave a good example with the TARP money. Another is the ability of the Federal Communications Commission, in effect, to lay a tax on its regulated firms. Uh, but these are, uh, in the respectively, one-off Mm -hmm. and rather small potatoes. The president is not able to go around spending willy-nilly. And as Frank recounts in the book, when President Nixon tried to non-spend through impoundment, uh, he not only elicited the Impoundment and Budget Act of 1974, he lost 22 of 23 court cases, saying that that was not a power that the president had. And in the one instance in which the president was upheld, it was because the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development had suspended the Section 8 housing subsidy or mortgage subsidy program for six months, advising the Congress, the statute says do X in order to get Y. We've been doing X. We're not getting Y. I'm going to not do X for the next six months and study this and get back to you and tell you whether it can be, you can do X and get Y. That was deemed good government and upheld by the D.C. Circuit. Um, but in every other instance, uh, the impoundment effort lost, and of course, it was then uh, was then capped by the uh, the Budget and Impoundment Act, which 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 cap gave the president discretion to non spend certain appropriations, but capped it, I believe, at ten percent, something like that, of each separate appropriation. On the war power, um, the, the the Congress, the president can wage war, and there's little the Congress can do about it. Um, true, true, but is it, is it distinctive? How, how many times has the, uh, has the parliament of either of the other two countries really uh, cabined the uh, ability of the prime minister to, uh, to make commitments? Um, what cabins these decisions is public sentiment, not government opposition, for the most part. Um, so I, I think the book undersells the degree to which there are informal political arrangements that pervade our presidential system and make it much more of a collective decision-making process than, uh, than is suggested simply by saying the president can do this or, or as he chooses or decline to do, to do that. The president, since the War Powers Act, has in every single case, I believe, consulted with various committees of the Congress before committing any, uh, any American uh, troops anywhere. Now, that's not the same as complying with the War Powers Act. Every president has maintained that it's unconstitutional, but no president has failed to talk 
with his counterpart, with the leadership in the Congress since the War Powers Act uh, was passed. Um, so I'll stop there, and, and we can we could just chat about these things for a little bit. My gosh, I'd have to write a new book to answer oh, everything. You, 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 here. Let no, me no. let me another pay. appendix. That's fine. <laughs> there are three appendices in here. There are regression analyses in this book. It's remarkable. <laughs> I want to pay tribute to Doug, than whom I cannot think of anyone who has more effectively restrained and overarching presidential power in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and you've given me so much to think about here. But let me take a few points only, and then, and then we'll toss it over to you people or continue the conversation. On the subject of going to war, um, some of you will recall the war chatter on the subject of Syria 16 months back. I mean, it's, it's hard to gauge political opinion here, but it's often more important to see what's not being said. Now, what was not being said immediately before the decision not to go to war in Syria was that going to war would be a bad thing. In fact, the silence from people on the left on the subject was, was quite remarkable. It seemed clear to everyone that we were on the verge of going to war or that there would be some military incursion. And then they had a vote in parliament and Cameron lost. It was, I guess, a free vote, but he lost something like 320 to 310 votes. And immediately after, the leader of the opposition said, well, right, now we know you have the power, notwithstanding this, to go to war, but do you intend to do so? And, and Cameron said, well, no, I will respect the voice of the people. Um, that wasn't going to happen here. But immediately after the voice, the vote in Parliament in, in Westminster, all the air came out of the balloon here. And it was clear that we were not going to act where the Brits weren't going to. So I think that that, that might be one example of, of what you were talking about, the difference between the regimes. Um, interestingly, Polybius had a comparison between parliamentary and presidential regimes 2,000 years ago comparing what seemed like a parliamentary system in Sparta with a more presidential one in Rome. And what he said is to fight a defensive war, a parliament works very well indeed, right? But if you really want to be imperialistic, you want to have a presidential system. I mean, the president can do what he wants, pretty much. And indeed, he can. And, and, and uh, as I said, I don't think he can be much constrained by Congress. Even Obama decided not to vote against authorizing military expenditures for, for the troops in Iraq. Um, what else should I say? May I comment on that? What? May I may comment on that before sure. we go on? Sure. Yeah, on the Syria vote, it reminds me of, of uh, two other examples. Um, when, the, when this president, when President Obama came into office, one of his first um, decisions had to do with um, the stimulus bill that President uh, Bush had bequeathed, the issue had bequeathed mm -hmm. him. And um, I was really quite shocked when it became clear, as it did from almost the outset, that the president intended not to submit a bill, but to uh, call upon the Congress to originate a bill. 
it seems to me it's been common ground in political science since the 1950s that the Congress is not capable of initiating significant legislation without leadership from, from government. Um, and then that, that um, experience was repeated with regard to the health care bill. The president's signature policy objective was written in the Congress. A very peculiar uh, allocation of, of power, if you're, from what you're telling us, that it's really a, a presidential rather than, uh, than con congressional, uh, uh, the president of Congress that runs the show. But the Syria vote is what brings it to mind because um, it seemed to me that, well, I don't remember the details of the day-to-day -day event, event, that the president had already announced that he was going to call for a congressional vote, which um, told me that he didn't want the, the responsibility of making this decision. Yes, he may have been able to make it, but because it might have been an extremely unpopular decision. Popular, popular view is a big, significant constraint on a president. But that it might have, because it might have been a very unpopular decision, he wanted a decision to come from the Congress. And then, of course, Parliament voted as it did, and that saved him and the Congress from the, save the day, as it were. At that point, it became impossible for the president to go forward. There have been a number of votes in Congress on authorizing the use of force. And it's rather curious how these things work. They always pass. But the minority party always arranges to give just enough votes to make it pass while keeping enough votes in reserve to say we didn't like it. <laughs> Republicans have played this game. So have the Gulf of Tonkin. The Gulf of Gulf Tonkin, Tonkin resolution. Yeah. And then the authorization of the use yeah, of military um, force in 2001. Yes, also during the Clinton administration, um, Kosovo, the mm -hmm, same thing. Mm -hmm. you, know, I hear, you know, look, this is the point I want to make in general. It's that libertarians should care about these issues. That the framers were right, that the chief thing you need to worry about is accumulation of all power in the hands of one person. That's what Montesquieu said. It's, it's what uh, the framers thought. And yet you have amongst conservatives a large number of people who don't think it's a particularly important problem. You, I mentioned Peggy Noonan and the, the patriotic impulse to love one's president, whoever it might be. There's also a national greatness crowd. I've heard Harvey Mansfield lecture, I don't know how often, on the Federalist Papers. And when he gets to Federalist 70 on energy and the executive, he practically lips, licks his lips. I almost wish that the America had not opened up the Panama Canal and built the Library of Congress to give these people something to talk about. And then perhaps you have the millennials, and one has the impression of them that provided that he supported, what, free birth controls for Sandra Fluck, they would happily vote for President Putin. I want to say, no, think about libertarian large, not libertarian small. Libertarian small is these issues, Sandra Fluck, but libertarianism large is what Gene has written about and what the framers were concerned about, which is what happens down the road when one person seems to hold nearly all the cards. That one person just doesn't make decisions unilaterally. Mm -hmm. There are um, advisors, committee structures within the executive office of the president, congressional 
committee people with who, with whom major decisions uh, are checked. Um, you mentioned uh, in the book um, presidential um, uh, uh, privilege to withhold documents, executive privilege. Mm-hmm. Executive privilege to withhold documents uh, is on a on a day to day and important basis virtually a nullity. When I was at the Department of Justice, uh, Representative Dingell, then chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, would demand documents, and we would go through the motions of talking about executive privilege, and then within short order, he would get the documents. And executive privilege was, as a practical matter, reserved for the most serious of matters, uh, things that were really would really inf- intolerably intrude upon uh, decision-making at the highest level. Well, maybe that was then, but I seem to recall that information was re- withheld over Benghazi, the IRS scandals, and the mere delay of the release of information importantly empowers a president. Um, you know, Clinton, for example, avoided impeachment and avoided conviction by, according to the best book on the subject, uh, by simply delaying the process long enough so that he could make the villain Ken Starr. And as Hillary said, well, as to Benghazi at this point, what difference does it make? Old news is what the Clintons used to call it. So I, I, I maintain that the ability to control the flow of information is extremely important. Indeed, at this point, you know, you have an entire press corps within the White House itself. If you see a photograph of the president, it's probably been taken by a, a White House photographer, right? Even as, apparently those silly ones of him attempting to toss the fastball, like that. that. That's all true, but that that what that is a change over the last 30 years. Yeah. And I think what you don't really address in this book, maybe in the next one, is why that's changed and what, what has changed to make that all true over the last 30 years. And does it really have anything to do with um, the difference in our governments? When I go to the United Kingdom, as I do once or twice a year, I'm sorry, it's much more rarely than I've been in Canada. Canada yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did try to I, I arbitrage have, the incredible American interest in Canada. But yeah, the, the thing that strikes me as the greatest uh, difference in the lives of the people in the United Kingdom and the United States is the difference between the Freedom of Information Act and the Official Secrets Act. Mm-hmm. I know my rights when I'm in England without having to study them, except in that one case. Mm. Well, I can't speak to that uh, as you can, as I'm not a legal expert in the area. Um, Parliament, however, has the ability to drag out information in a way that congressional committees don't seem to have here. At, At least one can ignore them in ways you can't ignore a determined opposition that will talk about the same issue again and again and again. You can't, you can't imagine the IRS scandal being sloughed off, or Benghazi being sloughed off. This would be the meat for the opposition day after day after day after day. It would wear them down, and they would have to, the government would have to respond. And this is not about, uh, you know, in a pig farm in northern England. This is about a basic issue. Remember that it is the opposition that chooses what questions to bring forward. And it is the role of the government to answer all of these questions uh, ably, with wit, uh, et dans les deux langues officielles du pays in Canada. 
both Benghazi and the IRS matters are still alive, still being pressed in, in anticipation of the midterm elections. Indeed, you pointed out how how frequently the midterm elections constitute a repudiation uh, of the president's uh, uh, prior two years. Right. And I, I'm not sure if 2010 did much, but if I wanted to present a model of how things can get better, it would be 1994 and Newt Gingrich. In other words, it would require a Speaker of the House to act like a leader of the opposition. And why is that? Well, how would that be different? It would mean that rather than speaking about your own local interest, right, uh, as, as a, or bringing money back to your district as a John Murtha would do, you would have a national program and speak for the country as a whole. One of the problems, it seems to me, with the presidential system is that the only person who speaks credibly to the nation as a whole and represents it is the president. And, 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 and then you have Congress, which is all over the place. Whereas in a parliamentary system, you more closely approach the Burkean ideal of a party that represents the country as a whole. And what does that exclude? It excludes the John Murthas. It excludes the Robert Byrds. So the, the, you know, th those kinds of problems endemic to, a, you know, to an American system are largely uh, absent in a parliamentary regime. And to your point, actually, uh, uh, Gingrich uh, was in 94 talked about nationalizing the election, as yeah. have others since then, yeah. without success. So that was a contract of America. Uh, I hold no brief for the Republicans, but I don't see anybody able to do the like uh, here. And as I was mentioned to Gene before, I'm, I'm sorry Gingrich didn't go all the way, because I surely should have liked to have seen First Lady Callista. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's up to you. Gene Walter had his hand up. <laughs> if you want to open up the sure. questions, that, that's uh, fine with me. Uh, uh, I'm going to call on you. Uh, are we bringing the microphone? Please, please wait for the microphone to get to you. And as you always have to remind people in Washington, D.C., please ensure that these uh, your statement ends with a question mark and that it's actually a, a question and not a speech. So, uh, Walter. Are we being, reco are we being recorded? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I'm Walter Olson with uh, the Cato Institute. Uh, let me start by praising a different book uh, with Professor Buckley's name on it. Uh, it's one about uh, the problems of the American legal system recently, the American disease, which you edited, right? Uh, but um, I, let me pursue on the courts because it does seem that uh, the courts are uh, still independent of the president and still an effective center of opposition. Um, here at Cato, we uh, boast about how often the courts have been uh, repudiating and striking down the Obama administration, including his own appointees, uh, like Justice Kagan and uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, in, in a series of decisions. It does not seem that he's managed to somehow consolidate that part of the government. The appeals courts, the D.C. Circuit, have been uh, regularly... Uh, you know, t turning away some of his regulatory efforts, uh, especially when they seem to uh, trample on, on the individual rights of the regulated. And, and could you explain, ha has he tried to incorporate this into his kingship? Has he, has he not tried, uh, or, or what? Well, I have a chapter on the subject. I don't know that it's a very successful chapter. I contrast um, 
Canada and the United States in that respect. And, and yes, it is the case that uh, the Supreme Court's voice is extremely important when it comes to the Bill of Rights, uh, less so on other issues, uh, federalism, for example, or, or the structure of government. I, I did not study, you see, American constitutional law. I studied Canadian constitutional law. And you know what that was like? I mean, a thousand-page casebook, and the first 900 pages were on the separation of powers between the feds and the provinces. And the last 100 pages was on the protection of, of human rights. But we never got there because it wasn't terribly important. From that idyllic uh, constitution Canada's departed, unfortunately. Um, so federalism is, is alive and well in Canada, less so here. On, on the structure of government in Washington, my imperfect review of the courts suggested to me that often the Supreme Court looked like a referee that yearned to award a 15-yard penalty to the team down 49 nothing at the half. It's, I thought, often wanted to enforce an abstract doctrine of separation of powers, which only imperfectly was reflected in the framers' debates, without a, a realization which the framers had as practical people of the reality of political power and where it vested. So I think that a Supreme Court informed by the realities of politics today and and understanding what the framers were about would do whatever it could to cut back presidential power, and that hasn't happened. So yes, I applaud the efforts of Cato to do uh, as just that as you describe. I think that's very important. But you know why I really didn't want to get into it? It's because I then said, well, if I want to say anything intelligent about this, I have to make a prediction as to what the courts will look like in the future. And then I said to myself, well, imagine you know, just play with a crazy idea, but imagine one has a democratic president for the next 10 years, right? So, I mean, constitutional law here, which for reasons which escape me, is, is taught as a subject at our law school, seems to me a bit of a lottery <laughs> won by the president. About, you know, <laughs> why they do it. <clears throat> it seems to me a bit of a lottery won by the president lucky enough to be in office when a member of the Supreme Court is unlucky enough to fall under a bus. So what will a court look like after the appointment of, you know, five or six more people? Well, there's a strong presidentialist lobby out there. I mean, there, there, there are people who I think would not necessarily on the court want to rein in a, a, a president whose ideas with whom they agree. But, you know, you know I, I really didn't want to make predictions about the future. It, it just... One thing I didn't do is want to say, as, as people like Eric Posner have said, oh, best of all possible worlds, how could it possibly go wrong? It's true, you know, other presidential regimes have fallen into some form of tyranny. And by the way, when, when I did that empirical study, I excluded the out-and-out -out dictatorships. So I, I looked at countries that were, you know, essentially somewhat free. I excluded the North Koreas and so on. They, they obviously didn't count. Now, I, I don't want to say that, apart from the states, presidential countries are always unfree, but name three. Name three, pres three presidential countries that are... That are free. That are free. Not unfree. 
going to get you want an answer? Go ahead. I can answer that right now. According to Freedom House, there, there are three of them. There is France, which is semi-presidential. That is to say, the chamber gets to turf out the cabinet. Something proposed, by the way, by the never-too-much-to-be-praised George Mason on September 7, 1787, and seconded by Benjamin Franklin, and George uh, um, James Madison signed on as well, but it lost. So there's France, but it's semi-presidential, not quite presidential. And anyway, we wouldn't want to bore anything from them. And then the other two countries are Chile and Uruguay. But you don't have to go far back in their history to find less than pleasant governments. So, so again, um, to an important extent, American exceptionalism comes down to the idea that it's free notwithstanding its constitution. If I may address the court question for just that Walter raised for just a second. Um, there was an article, an editorial, I should say, in today's Wall Street Journal, which I didn't have time really to read, but only to skim, to the effect that a judge in the district, federal district court here in the District of Columbia, same courthouse as mine, um, one of the judges who took office in the last year or so, perhaps it's two now, appointed, nominated by President Obama, um, has um, taken a leading role with regard to the IRS cover-up uh, to which mm. you referred, and uh, that if that, and is moving things along towards uh, discovery. Second, uh, as for venturing a guess about the future. I'm not sure that everyone fully appreciates, or that anyone fully appreciates, or that maybe I exaggerate, the significance of our recent, uh, this recent experience with um, the majority leader uh, invoking the so-called nuclear option so that a bare majority of the Senate can confirm the appointment of a judge to the lower courts. Mm -hmm. Now, this hasn't been extended yet to the Supreme Court, but I presume in extremis it will be. But the significance of this for our judiciary is hard to, um, I think in the long run, hard to, um, to overstate. It means that judges who can command as few as 51 will be appointed. I don't know why judges who can command fewer than 67 or 75 should ever be appointed. And you're going to, if this happens, if this plays out as I expect, you'll see a polarized and politicized judiciary that will truly make us much more like uh, the, uh, the unfortunate countries you've mentioned than we are now. When I say it doesn't matter who wins in November, the response often is, well, what about the courts? And with the demise of a nuclear, with, with, with the ability to appoint or confirm judges with 51 votes, it sounds like it would make a difference. I, I think what it would have the effect of doing is excluding judges with a, with a paper trail. Um, I think it's not beyond the wit of man to find, um, I'm not sure what to call them, shall I call them monarchists? Presidentialists, I mean, those people who want to build up the presidential power. I don't know if it's beyond the wit of an administration to find those kinds of people and appoint them. Um, 
It wasn't beyond the wit of a you know, Henry VIII or a Charles I. Or, you, know. you exclude the people, you know, who have written unpleasant, unfortunate things about how they want to expand presidential power, but you, you can find such people. Well, Did Lois Lerner have a paper trail? I, I, I think, the, I think the, maybe the only district judge nominee in the Clinton administration who was not confirmed didn't have a paper trail in the sense of having written articles, if that's what you mean, but had no qualifications other than having been a major fundraiser for the president's re-election. And um, that person might well, I don't recall whether it came to a vote, I think it did, that person might well have had 51 or more votes. When President Roosevelt proposed to pack the court by expanding the number of seats on the on the Supreme Court from 9 to 15. There were 96 members of the Senate. I think 60-some were Democrats. The, the bill got 20 votes. You what? The bill got 20 votes, yeah. and that was the end of that. Um, but the nuclear option has stealthily accomplished something that could be almost as significant. Um, in the back there. Hi, Arnold Kling. Uh, one nit, there, you have a table of parliamentary, where, where you have parliamentary systems at the top and presidential systems at the bottom, and Singapore you put into parliamentary camp, which I have a hard time thinking about the way Singapore is run, thinking about it as a something where the, the president is checked by parliament in the ways you talk about. Um, but more broadly, I... I took away something different from the book than, you know, parliamentary systems, yay, presidential systems, boo. I took away something that sort of, demo that democracy has a flaw that's been accentuated uh, by sort of modern technology and modern uh, views of it, which is that it goes back to your point that the president had, or, or, and any one who's elected uh, nationally, and that includes a prime minister in today's parliamentary systems usually, has this tremendous legitimacy advantage over a legislature. And you know, so that was my big takeaway. And I, so I don't think that parliamentary systems came across to me as a solution for that. And I wonder if you'd comment on that. Well, you're right that um, you're right that greater legitimacy is conferred on the president as opposed to Congress because he is the only person elected by the country as a whole. Uh, and I think you were also right, if I understood you, to say that prime ministers have something like that because, notwithstanding that, uh, Stephen Harper is a member from Calgary South. He's really the leader of a national party that campaigns campaigns as a, as a national party. So. Um, I suggest that's advantage Canada as opposed to the United States or advantage parliamentary in that in a parliamentary regime, unless you have strong sectional divisions, as is the case in Quebec, both national parties or all national parties are trying to campaign for the whole country. And you can't throw away a province or a state. Whereas if you're... A congressman here, you're campaigning for your district. 
generally, and you don't necessarily care all that much about what happens elsewhere. John Murtha, there, thus you get, you know, the, the John Murtha International Airport, for example. So that, that that's that's a, a that's an American problem. Madison understood, did not understand this. I'm down on Madison. Madison talked about majoritarian oppression, which is the majority oppressing the minority. But there's something, and, and that's how he got his theory of extensive republics. But there's a minoritarian oppression as well, and its name is, is Robert Byrd. And that's where somebody in a minority district, in just one district, can ignore the good of the country and just try to transfer wealth to that particular district. And, and there's, there's simply far less of, of that in a parliamentary system. You can't get away with that so much. Hi, <clears throat> uh, my name is Kenneth Rothschild. Um, I'll ask the question first and then I'll tell you why I'm asking it. Um, <clears throat> do you think, it seems to me, no, I, I want to ask the question. Is there a way to do a consideration of what type of governing we want that's a greater scope than what either of you gentlemen are presenting? And the reason I'm asking that is the nature, and it sort of goes with that earlier gentleman, that other gentleman spoke to, the nature of our problems now doesn't lend itself merely to geographic location. And I'm afraid that we're losing an aspect of democratic governing by limiting ourselves only to geographic representation. And I think the advantage <clears throat> is given to the special interests that have a broader scope and know how to work either system better than the citizens themselves. So my concern is how maybe we can leapfrog to go just beyond the advantages maybe of parliamentary or whatever, whatever, to really consider what is at stake now in terms of our problems and how we're going to get a representation that reflects the interests of the citizenry. And I don't know that we're going to get it from either of these systems. So is there a way to go beyond this and sort of work from the bottom up? I think what you're suggesting is not, in fact, representation, but something like direct democracy on the model of, uh, you know, elections by computers. Now, you can imagine, for example, that technology would develop in such a way that you could have secure voting. And there was something in the Wall Street Journal today about how you can't have that. And where the voting could be in, indeed more frequent. I mean, why every four years? Why every two years? On an issue, why not when the issue arises? So that would be a way of rendering representatives mere pawns, right? Like the electors in electoral college. That isn't really what I was asking okay. specifically. You put the words in my mouth. I'm asking for an examination that will go beyond what the parliamentary or the, the uh, presidential system are offering. So that's one possibility. Yeah. There are still others. You have 
since I failed in my first example. <laughs> do you have another one to suggest? I agree with you on the computer thing. It just, we can't do it every day. We could have representations that are geographic, that are, are maybe we could have an environmental representative and things like that. What we could do is instead of having a representation limited to the geography continuously, mm -hmm. we could consider, and I haven't thought this through entirely, we consider a possibility of reorganizing periodically, not every day, the nature of representation. In other words, people could register possibly as an environmental person that was interested in that. But I'm, I'm, I don't have the answer. But what I'm suggesting is we have to think more broadly than we are right now. So I don't want to I don't want to lock it in as to I know the answer, but I can tell you Oh, if Yeah. You add that to a parliamentary system and you get Israel. My god, you never want to be there. Italy. Italy, yeah. Um you know, all of this would require some constitutional amendment which and any I, proposal of a constitutional amendment seems to me plainly visionary. I performed this little exercise. I, I taught a course on the framers. And at the end of it, I said, and bear in mind, Mason Law students are perhaps not your typical law student. And those people who registered for my course were surely not the typical law student. But I said, right, it's Article 5 time. We looked at the Constitution. Now we get to redo it. So I said, the elected president, you want, the, oh, sure. Can't depart from democracy. I said, well, what about the Senate? A bunch of buffoons, you won't miss them. No, no, we can't touch the Senate. So it seemed to me that, you know, the questions that would go to a constitutional convention would be answered on the basis that things are not so bad right now and we're not going to monkey with them. And in particular, we're not going to monkey with the Connecticut Compromise, which gave small states an outside voice in governance and gave us farm subsidies and the like. I mean, we can't just unpack it. I think we're stuck with it. Uh, Matt? Thanks. Uh, Matthew Feeney from Cato. I was hoping that both the speakers might be able to comment on a criticism of Prime Minister's questions uh, that happens weekly in the House of Commons, which is that, uh, well, a number of members of Parliament complain that it is too boisterous and that it's too theatrical and that it uh, isn't as serious as perhaps it should be taken. And I say this as a fan uh, of the uh, question time period. You want to take that? Well, you're more familiar. Okay, well. Um, God, I love frivolousness. I mean, anything that makes government seem more serious than it should be or that it is, I, I am against. So if there is a display of wit, I'm all for it. You know, there was, a, there was this great debate in Ottawa a couple of months back on what should be done with respect to the threat of a zombie incursion. And there's a serious debate about this. And 
you know, finally the minister in charge said that Canada will never be a haven for zombies. You will never see a zombie a couple of apocalypse in Canada. I loved it. I mean, these guys are, should not take themselves seriously. And, uh, and in a parliamentary regime, I think it, it's easier to think of them as buffoons. That's a good thing and protective of liberty. One of the consequences, it seems to me, that uh, of parliamentary government, at least as we know it in, in, in Canada and UK, is that um, the elected members of the House then head up the ministries. And so you have um, people elected for uh, the constituency from Reading or what have you, who are now expected to run the health ministry. Mm -hmm. um, now, the number of, of um, civil servants in the career service uh, outnumber that that uh, man and his and his uh, his secretary probably or staff of two mm -hmm. or three by tens of thousands to one, mm -hmm. um, and um, the, the the what's lacking in that scheme, it seems, I, I think is the accountability of the government and that minister for whatever to any oversight in the commons. I mean, they, when the president here puts somebody in charge of the health and human services or homeland security or what have it, they are subject to oversight by six or eight committees between the two chambers. Um, it is a, uh, a, a not uncommon tactic when the president is of a different party than one of the uh, chambers, the majority of one of the chambers, for those oversight committees to simply require the head of the department to be on the Hill two or three days a week. Now, they're doing that in order to frustrate that person's ability to run the department. But they are certainly subjecting that person to a serious degree of oversight, unlike question time. Well, um, I've listened to some of those uh, hearings. And I can't say I walked away very impressed at the ability of Congress to rein in anyone. Uh, I'm thinking of Kathleen Sebelius. I'm thinking of Veterans Affairs Secretary Shinesky. Um, the doctrine of ministerial responsibility is in not great health anywhere, but it's entirely absent here. The idea that you're responsible for a department and if you come a cropper, you better resign. That, that, that simply doesn't exist. So yes, there are hearings, and it's you know it's it's, it's a great show. I don't know if it really does anything. Um, question period in Ottawa is not prime minister's questions. It's each minister gets to stand up and defend his department. But importantly, their power has been centralized in the prime minister's office, much, you know, much more so than here. What has happened there is um, the Privy Council office, which is what runs the bureaucracy, and the prime minister's office, which is the West Wing, meet together to decide policy and how to defend it. And it's really top down from the prime minister. So the the you know you, you you may be the minister of agriculture and you've got a riding out in Saskatchewan or someplace but but you know the reality is that you know your your voice is is counts for very little. A cabinet meetings in in Britain and Canada 
usually accomplish this goal. The prime minister tells them what the issues of the day are, and they sign on. And that's all it is to it. They don't advance new policies. They are told what to do, and all the direction comes from the prime minister's office, which is the politicos in Westminster or, 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 or in Ottawa. So it's... Uh, it's very much, it's even more top-down there than here. But in that respect, it's very similar. Cabinet meetings are not a yeah. functional decision-making uh, right. opportunities. They're, uh, they're either for show-and-tell um, or uh, to deliver a decision that's been made by, say, the National Economic Council mm -hmm. uh, to, to the members of the, of the cabinet. But the point is that to try to carve out, to find 15 people in the House of Representatives in, in this country who would be capable of running even five of these departments would be a bit of a stretch. Whereas the president can reach out and find people from anywhere. They don't have to be elected to the House in order to serve as the head of a cabinet agency. Well, the difference is you'd have to find them a seat in Parliament. I mean, that's not impossible. Right. Yes. Not, not impossible at all. Right. Admittedly, made harder because of reform. In the 1830s, I'm not in favor of reform. Things are bad enough already. Uh, this gentleman over here. To quote Mayor Daly, Chicago isn't ready for reform. <laughs> the first Mayor Daly. You're right. His honor. <laughs> Paul Mirenkoff, Um I find it a little ironic that you are pushing for a parliamentary system here, inciting uh, Walter Badjaho, where President Wilson who is probably the biggest villain, in, in, perhaps in the piece of, of expansion of presidential power, uh, wanted the parliamentary system and was a big hero, and Bajaho was a big hero of his, second only, I guess, to Hegel. Um, but, and, and the reason Wilson wanted that, I think, is because he wanted to, you know, knock down the separation of power and merge presidential power, you know, make Congress, and, Congress an adjunct of, of presidential power and avoid be majority constraints on majority will. Um, and my, my question is looking at looking at President Obama coming in, in in 2008. I mean, it appears that he was able to accomplish a lot with this Democratic majority, but there are a lot of things he wasn't able to accomplish even in that first term, even that those first two years. Union card check didn't get nearly the stimulus that he wanted. Didn't get single payer. Only got Obamacare because of a fluke in in a fluke uh, gaffe in Virginia and a wrongful prosecution by the Bush administration in Alaska. So I, the, the question is, do, do you, wouldn't Obama have been able to achieve more in, in terms of, of power and overriding, you know, minority concerns and expanding the federal government under a parliamentary system, even in those, those first two years? He would certainly have had, as prime minister, a greater control over his caucus, uh, it is well that you pointed out to single payer in in the Affordable Care Act. Um, the hero or the villain there, as you will, was Joe Lieberman, who said, um, no single payer if you want my vote. And at that point, it was so narrow. And this was before the, the nuclear option. Uh, they had to go along with it. I thought it extraordinary that... Um, Somehow, after all of that, one ended up with legislation, which I thought was worse than single-payer in Canada. Um, the Canadian bill, by the way, is not a 1,000 pages long. It's 12 pages long, and it's bilingual. Um, of course, the Canadians are the real victims here because they'll no longer be able to come to Mayo Clinic. <laughs> they actually... Uh, 
seem to do rather well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't respond. <laughs> I, I missed. I missed. I didn't answer your question satisfactorily. It seems to me. What did I miss? Uh, just big picture. Could have Obama accomplished a lot more under a parliamentary system? You know, he. You're you're absolutely right. Well, you're, you're right, but two points. The first is that uh, his hands are not tied if Congress doesn't go along. And the example is the DREAM Act, where he accomplished by fiat that which Congress did not want to do. But the other point goes to the question of the ability to pass legislation in the first instance where, as compared to the ability to reverse bad laws. So I, I make the point in the book that Parliament has this advantage over a presidential regime. It's easier to repeal a dumb law. I mean, there, were, there have been plenty in every country, but it's easier to get rid of them. Whereas here, it's like a one-way ratchet where bad ideas are legislated and then turned into the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So um, the question, I suppose, is whether the screening up front by Congress before bills are passed is in some way superior to the, the ease of repealing bad laws. And I argue that reversibility is more important than ex-ante screening. And by the way, I haven't seen much ex-ante screening in Washington. I mean, if you have to pass a law to know what's in it, that doesn't look like there's much screening. Whereas, you know, really dumb things done by Parliament in Canada, the gun registry law, was was found to be a, a complete disaster, and Parliament repealed it. Parliaments can do that. Frank, I disagree on two scores, at least yeah. to matter to some degree. Um, the the for lack of ex ante screening or or study, you you give a, a, a glib example, an mm -hmm. extreme example. Serious legislation generally has a, a gestation period that spans two or three Congresses. Mm -hmm. uh, ideas do not just uh, typically, you know, there, there are exceptions, of course. The mm -hmm. TARP is an exception, the health care bill is an exception, but uh, something as seemingly straightforward as the Freedom of Information Act or the Airline Deregulation Act or things of that sort are, uh, take a, a, a good deal of time to be formulated, and there are series of hearings and it's it's not uh, impulsive conduct for the most part. Now, as for reversibility, uh, you're quite right that we find it very difficult to weed out even the dumbest of of uh, mistakes, and there it's a good deal easier in in a parliamentary system. But this the other side of that coin is is that that creates a certain degree of instability that we don't have. Uh, so that you have industries nationalized, denationalized, nationalized again, and then finally sold off by Mrs. Thatcher over a period of 35 years. Um, that sort of lurching back and forth with the uh, most recent election just doesn't happen here. 
and and while it, you know <laughs> there's hardly anybody who wouldn't think that we'd need a better tax system than we have i can't imagine a worse one than one that changes significantly every three or four years i've heard the instability argument made it's persuasive to you the extent you think that the present regime is a good one or that laws are always well-intentioned and, and well-reasoned. I'd like to see more instability in Washington as far as that goes. Well, the, the, one of the virtues of stability is that people learn to work around it. Yeah. You, just, <laughs> you destroy their, their, their investment in learning well, how to get around the law. Street be? <laughs> I think we have time for uh, one more, and then we'll uh, adjourn for reception and book signing. Little light one. Your your comments about the I'm John Swallow. Uh, your, the Canadian health care single payer bill and the and Obamacare. I mean, twelve pages versus a thousand. Is that a, a fairly common feature of parliamentary government? Very much so. You'd look at almost any piece of comparable legislation. Bankruptcy is an area I taught, and the American legislation seemingly has elephantiasis. And when you look more carefully at it, what you discover is the interest group bargains that are built into the American legislation. Frank, in the book, you specifically criticize the, the breadth of delegations given by the Congress to the agencies mm -hmm. as, the, as part and parcel, a big part of the shift of power to the presidency, or at least to the executive branch. But the difference there is between a separation of powers regime where after you enact it, you kiss it goodbye in a parliamentary regime where you get to turn it around and turf it out if you don't like it or hold the government accountable. Well, when you've got a 12, or let's say six page bill in the English version anyway, uh, for, and the edifice has been built up for the national health scheme, um, isn't it just as, uh, as, uh, as uh, unrepealable as, uh, as anything here? Probably, yes, but that's because it's desired by the voters. Now, Cato runs this economic freedom index, and the United States has been dropping like a stone, in my view, not nearly fast enough, But and the countries above are largely parliamentary, and of those parliamentary countries, most have some form of medical care, um, government care, I think in the end it's something one's going to have to live with and look for other ways in which freedom can be expanded in this country. If all of those other countries are ranked higher by Cato, they must know something about economic freedom. And by the way, when I say that America's ranking seems to me too high, what I have in mind is perhaps if Walter's thumb was more heavily to be found on the index, we'd have a greater recognition of a tort system which looks like a deranged casino of judicially sanctioned theft of contracts that aren't enforced. Do you know what's happening right now on, on the subject of my area of contract law? It used to be the case that one would write clauses in a contract saying California law won't apply, but rather New York law will apply. But what VP legals tell me is now they're going to write them so that British law will apply. You get a suit, you know, you get a nice trip over there. You see the plays in the East End, like, yep, good stuff. 
Singapore gets a lot of that business too. <laughs> maritime contracts. Mm. All right. I think we'll uh, adjourn for a beer and wine reception and uh, you can pick up a book outside and Professor Buckley will sign it. If you do. Thank you.